0: Welcome to Sagecast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on Sagecast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we welcome science writer Virginia Morell, class of 71, the author of several books, including Animal Wise. How We Know Animals Think and Feel. Welcome, Virginia. Hi, nice to be here with you. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it's good to have you with us here, kind of, in cyberspace. (laughs) (laughs) So how are you adjusting to this new confined lifestyle?
1: Uh, Well, it's not that that different. I think as uh, writers, we're used to being socially isolated at any anyway. and so um, I'm just doing what I've Done, which is to sit in my office and uh, interview people by telephone or um, Skype and uh, write articles and read and think. So, take my dogs for walks. I do get out every day for a nice walk with our with our dogs. So always a nice thing to be able to do, but it's really not that different from what I was how I was living my life before, except that it's so quiet. and we don't see other people of course everybody Mm -hmm. seems to be here in Oregon seems to be following the rules
0: that's that's good to hear yeah (laughs) Uh, Virginia which came first in your life science or writing
1: wow that's uh, I think they both came about the same time I mean as a kid I really love to read, and I was apparently writing little stories when I was six, seven years old, probably just, you know, I saw my, took my dog to the park kind of stories. <laughs> uh, but I was also always really keen on science. I remember that my parents um, bought my brother, my older brother, a microscope set with a little chemistry set for his, I think his seventh birthday. I was so jealous. I would have been <laughs> five So so they got me one for my next birthday. And then I went on to, uh, I really loved it. And I loved looking through the microscope at all these things that you couldn't normally see. And I would, my dad took um, just like a, a drinking glass and he would draw on a piece of paper, use it as a sort of a template and draw around it so that he made circles like what I was seeing through my microscope. And then I would fill in what I saw and Mm. I took the, the book of those drawings, uh, and my microscope set to the year, the annual hobby show at our at our elementary school, and I got a gold prize. <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> so awesome. I was always keen on science, but my strengths um, academically were in writing and reading, and not. I wasn't particularly strong in math, and I I think about that. I th- and wonder why and I expect that it was because it wasn't um it wasn't applied and so I couldn't really understand you know why we would do these equations there was didn't seem to be any reason other than trying to figure out why Susie went to the market and did (laughs) so so and that was a pretty boring plot line Mm -hmm. So, so um I, I didn't realize I could combine my two strengths until uh, I was working at the uh, Pomona College Computer Center, and I think it was the, then the president of Harvey Mudd, he came around and he mentioned to me that there was a uh, there were always a need for good science writers, and that I might think about that as a career after Pomona, and I hadn't at that time in the 70s, early 70s, I don't think that science writing had certainly not blossomed into the field that it is today. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't sure what, how you would go about becoming that. But his comment to me did get me to start looking at Time Magazine, which was a much bigger enterprise than it is now. And they, they had always these sections in the back of the magazine about you know the the science writer would cover something like the astronauts blasting off from Cape Canaveral and and I thought yeah you know that would be really cool to be able to be a person like that because I love to go do adventurous things and I could write about them so uh uh, but I didn't go about doing that directly I instead I imagined that I would be uh, what I'd sort of prepared to be, which was a college professor teaching literature somewhere. And I mm-hmm. went to McGill University in Montreal, Canada, for a degree as a, in medieval literature, which is far away from <laughs> thinking about science, you would think, except that there I also had a really wonderful professor, um, Benjamin Weems, who taught this course in, um, what did he call it, it was metaphor and... An analogy, I think, and he talked about the difference between the way the people of the medieval times perceived the world compared to our times when we were in an era where relativity was a strong influence, in the way that we per- talked about the world and our experiences in it, and uh, so that really began to shift my point of view too, and it made me realize how influential science was in the world, you know that it really affected everything from art literature, music, everything across the board. In medieval times, was influenced by their ideas that things weren't necessarily they weren't as if it wasn't like it's uh, you're as beautiful as a rose as a rose you are the rose. That was the kind of thinking that they that they had at that time. So anyway, I, I got very interested in that, but. I also wanted very much to travel. I had not been outside of the United States except for Canada and Mexico. And so I thought, okay, I'll, um, I'd consider joining the Peace Corps, but then uh, I I had friends from Ethiopia who were at Pomona College and Claremont Colleges. And they said that if I just went to uh, their country, I would be able to get a teaching job because I had this master's degree. I thought that was just nuts, but I decided I would try it. I had the names of their parents and and lived there in the capital city of Addis Ababa. And so I um, did this crazy thing and I traveled by myself through Europe, got myself to Greece and bought a round-trip ticket because you couldn't buy one way to Addis Ababa. So I bought a round-trip ticket from Athens to Addis and landed there. And uh, initially had some trouble, Not sh- I wasn't sure how I was going to get in touch with this family, but people seemed to know them. Of course, they were very wealthy Ethiopians and were well known. So after a couple of days, I was rescued from the little hotel I was staying in and taken in by these lovely people. <laughs> and uh, then the, the mothers, they were quite amazed that I was there and that I was looking for a job but the mother thought it was wonderful as did um, this one friend of mine his stepfather who is General shifaro and he was head of the Harar Mil- military academy and he had lived here in the states he'd gone to school at one of our I'm not sure if it was in Georgia somewhere that he he'd spent some time living here in the states and so he thought I was really great that I was so brave that I would come to his country, (laughs) really unattached to anything official. Mm -hmm. He took me around to meet the head of USAID in Addis. And that man, you could see his alarm on his face, because I probably looked really young, you know, about 15 years old. (laughs) (laughs) I was in my early 20s, but I did look rather young and and inexperienced. And this poor man, his eyes, just as, as General Schiffer was explaining how I had arrived and I was looking for a job and perhaps they could help me out. And This man's eyes got wider and wider. And, and he said, well, you know, the best thing you can do is to probably go home and apply through official channels. And but I'm here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But I'm here already. <laughs> yeah. So uh, on the way down the, uh, in the elevator and the embassy, um, General Schifferow turned to me and he said, I don't think he's going to help us. <laughs> <laughs> Very no, perceptive. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I don't think so. <laughs> so, so instead, uh, my friend's mother, a lovely woman, um, Ezra, uh Gosh, what's her name? Laketsch, She took me um, to the Ministry of Education and I filled out a form there to apply for a teaching job in a secondary school and then she took me to the university. At that time, it was Haile Selassie was still the emperor. And so it was the Haile Selassie one um, uh, university, in Addis Ababa, the big university in, this, in the country. And uh, so I went in to meet the Dean of Humanities there. And I'm not going to remember his name, but he was a wonderful, warm fellow. And I had brought along my transcripts from Pomona and McGill and sat down and gave them to him and said, you know, I was applying, I knew that they needed um, first year English teachers. The university was English speaking. And so most of the classes were all taught in English and they had also a need for people to teach English composition and literature. And so I was applying for a junior level position in that. And he was very kind, you know, (laughs) this young woman. (laughs) And uh, he looked down at my papers and he said, My goodness, you went to McGill? I said, Yes. He said, I did my PhD there. You're hired. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the yeah,
0: easiest just, I guess, of my, my life. Just a, yeah, just a, a reminder that luck is as important as skill. <laughs>
1: It really is. It really is. It was just so, it was just so funny. So then we talked about McGill and how lovely Montreal was and how cold it was, you know, to live there. But um, yeah, it was, so that worked out. And so then I taught there at the university for uh, a little, well, two years basically, but the things went, things changed dramatically because toward the, I, I, trying to think exactly how events unfolded, but uh, there there were the beginnings of a revolution that were starting. People were very unhappy because there were, were reports were coming in to the capital, which is more or less in the center of the country, that people in the Northern part were starving. And so there was a terrible famine underway, but it was being hidden by the authorities and suddenly you would see uh, pictures appearing on the streets of, of artists' photographs taped up against telephone poles and street lamp- lamps of Haile Selassie feeding his dog birthday cake while next to it was a picture of a starving Ethiopian child and mm-hmm. something written in their language. And I learned to speak a little bit of the language and to read some of the writing. It's They have an entirely different alphabet but I, I couldn't read those, but it was obvious and all you need to do is look at the pictures to see that this wasn't going to be very good for the emperor. And people would be out there, soldiers, police officers would be out early in the morning taking these down, but they'd pe- appear the next day automatically, they'd be up again. Hmm. And uh, slowly things began to really become more and more unsettled. Uh, there were the, the um, how did it go? The, the, I think that the non-commissioned officers Went into his office, to his meeting rooms one day, and demanded. You know, he would sit there on his throne, and but they came in in force, and they demanded that um, they be given a pay raise, and that of course they hadn't applied to any kind of the official way to do it. They just came in and made their demands, and everyone was shocked when he gave in to them, and that mm-hmm. was really the beginning of the end of him. Because having done that one thing yeah. to the NCOs, then what else were they going to ask for? And of course, then uh, the price of gasoline went up because some of the the peoples to the on the uh, western side of the country who live in the desert areas they began demanding more money and payments from the emperor. He had a way of kind of keeping everything under control by paying the sultan of the area fix some of money and anyway so they started stopping all the ta- oil tankers that were coming in and they would escort the truck drivers off of their off the trucks and then they would blow up the trucks so suddenly there is no gasoline for sale in, in Otis mm-hmm. and then the taxi cab drivers started stoning the buses because they didn't want the city buses to go if they couldn't drive their cabs and <laughs> slowly the whole society collapsed you could see it happening step by step. Mm-hmm. And the students were out in the street demanding that land be broken up. It was still a feudal society so that there were big landowners who were related to the emperor who owned the land and the peasants would work the land and then they would have to pay much of what they grew to their landholders. And so the students were demanding land to the tiller And eventually, one day, the NCOs went back to the emperor, and they said, come with us, and they escorted him out, put him in the back of a VW bus bug, I think, just a tiny little (laughs) car, and drove him off, and that was the last anyone ever saw of him in public. So... Mm -hmm. There we were, <laughs> having a revolution. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> so, it wasn't what I'd signed up for. <laughs> um, I bet.
0: My, my dad. Had but quite said, an experience.
1: It was, it was. It was the bloodless revolution. At least that's how it started out, you know, and there were soldiers everywhere and tanks, but the students would walk by and they'd put flowers in the guns of the soldiers. It was every. It seemed like it was going to be kind of smooth, except that, The people who took over were the military and they had uh, this committee of 120 men who were ruling the country and they decided that or some of them decided that the first thing they were going to do was to attack the North that wanted to secede and so um, that didn't go very well. And my paycheck began to shrink because they started taking more tax money out to pay for their war in the North yeah it was like just and you have of course you have no voice it, that yeah. was the other interesting thing was to live through a revolution you realize it's not the best way to solve problems people are young people especially might think that revolutions are really great but they quickly turned bad and it did mm-hmm. it went very very quickly from being a bloodless revolution to an all-out war and uh city hall was blown up one day from people from the north and everything was so unsettled and uneasy. And I was trying to teach, but then they closed the university. They sent all the students out to do a campaign of they had to teach socialism, hygiene and medicine, I think. And it was mostly to break the students up. And yeah. anyway, I could go on and on about <laughs> living in the times of the Ethiopian revolution, but it turned out to not be really happy. But I stayed and I Signed a new contract and I stayed for the second year of the Ethiopian Revolution and watched as the society continued to crumble and things became even dicier. And then um, I decided I would leave after two years of that. I didn't want to. I really loved living there. I loved the adventure of it and just mm-hmm. the everyday newness of living in some place that was so outside my own realm of experience. I, I can't advise young people uh, often enough to do that kind of thing, to take yourself out of the known and put yourself in a situation where everything is brand new every day. It was just a remarkable experience and paid handsomely <laughs> later in my life when I decided um, well, I think it was largely because of that experience. Then my plan had been to go back to university and and get a PhD, but After having lived outside a university, a formal academic setting where I was studying, I just couldn't picture myself being back in that sort of sheltered environment. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to be out in the world and doing things and experiencing uh, more than an ivory towered existence. And so um, I came home. And my first job, thank goodness for my years of work, the couple of years that I spent working at the computer center, because I got a job as a junior technical writer at a computer company.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> ah, technical writer.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And actually there that too proved to be worth my time because I learned how to talk to scientists there. I mm-hmm. had to go in and talk to the engineers and learn how they're brains work differently from mine and had to translate what they would say to me in their geeky kind of language with a lot of jargon into straight English. And so that was a really useful experience. And I also learned how the business world worked, or at least in that little company, which was disappointing. <laughs> and they would sell a lot of things that they hadn't made yet. And so then there'd always be a scramble back among the engineers, or they'd have to make these things that the salesman had sold. Mm. So, <laughs> that was disheartening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked at, I decided at some point, maybe my second year working for that company, that I was, I think I was 26, 27, and I just decided I had to start, if I was going to be a writer, I had to really start doing it. And so, um I went with a friend. We down to South America. We w- decided we would backpack the Inca Highway from Cusco to Machu Picchu.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, at the end of that, I said, "Okay, now I I've been reading the New the Los Angeles Times travel section, and I'd always think I could do that. You know, I could write those <laughs> things. <laughs> I can travel like that. I can." And so I t- sat down. I said, "Okay, I have to write a story about this trip that we took to." Machu Picchu and I and I did it and I folded it up like a business letter and sent it off I wrote on I think travel editor Los Angeles Times and they wrote back about five days later and said we're buying this we'll pay you x amount of money and please send us more.
0: (laughs) And you were off and running.
1: I thought, wow, that's not how it's supposed to happen. (laughs) (laughs)
0: You're supposed to combine your wall with uh, with rejection letters, right? Yeah.
1: (laughs) So that Um, gave me a lot of hope. And I started then building a kind of a, a, a small career as a travel writer. I make trips, short ones, and I would write about them. And I... Uh, did uh, self syndication where I would sell them first to the LA Times and then I could sell them elsewhere in the country as long as I didn't overlap markets Mm -hmm. and then uh, discovered that there was this other job you could have where you were a contract technical writer so you didn't have to work for a company but another company would send you out and you could make really good money doing that (laughs) so I did that for a while and I would go on assignments for these contract uh, assignments for a short period of time and and make a nice stash of money and then use that to pay for a trip somewhere. <laughs> and I started then, um, I a friend of mine, uh, well, I made friends with the editor at the Los Angeles Herald Examiner, which is defunct now. Mm-hmm. She was the uh, travel editor there, and she invited me to lunch with her. And then she introduced me to editors at various magazines that were published out of LA. She was really kind. And that was the other thing that I found was a lot of editors were really very, very helpful in getting me started in my career. She introduced me to a fellow who was very successful and he taught me how to write a pitch letter (laughs) <laughs> the things I remember from him, his advice mm. about a pitch letter was that it could only be one page because mm-hmm. editors didn't have time to turn page. <laughs> <laughs> and you better yeah. be able to say what your idea was in the first paragraph, if not the first sentence. And it had to really mm-hmm. be grabby. And... Mm-hmm. Um, So then I was trying to pitch ideas to various magazines, again, mostly outdoor-oriented ones, Backpacker magazine. I got assignments from them early on. And and, uh, then I was aiming for, my big dream was to get stories in outside magazine. (laughs) That was my my big goal. (laughs) And uh, I began to be invited on these trips. They were called familiarization trips or fam trips where they would invite writers from various uh, regional areas and they'd take a group of you off to say Tahiti was one that I did and, and, one, and then this other one came up uh, was thanks again to my friend at the LA Herald Examiner, Kathy Healy. She, she said, she got this call saying could she go skiing in France and she told them no she couldn't because she was going to Hawaii (laughs) the life of a travel editor (laughs) So, (laughs) so but she gave them my name so I got this call one morning saying, oh, hello, please. We're from the French Tourism <laughs> Bureau in Los Angeles. Can you come skiing in France? <laughs> mm, let me think about that. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, well, I, not if I'm washing my hair that day, but. <laughs> 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 so uh, on that fam trip, there was an ed- going to be an editor from Outside Magazine. And I was like, oh yes, bonus, you know, I'll get to meet an editor from outside magazine and I'll talk to him about my experiences living in Ethiopia. And maybe I'll get, I'll work my way up to an assignment. So I got my ski stuff together. I really wasn't much of a skier. I have to confess to that, but I thought I could manage, you know, (laughs) they have to have a bunny slope somewhere. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, so, um, We got to, I think it was this town of La Clouseau was the first place that we were all meeting. And the writer from Outside Magazine was a man named Michael McRae. And uh, so we came down from our rooms and he was already there in the the little anteroom, the little lobby area, having drinks with some of the other writers. And he was, turned out to be this young, handsome guy. (laughs) I was like, oh, my Lord, <laughs> what am I going to do now? <laughs> he's, not, he's not a gray beard, you know? Yeah. He's, like, really good-looking. If I <laughs> start talking to him, he's probably going to think I'm hitting on him, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> what, my God, whatever am I going to do? <laughs> and so I was just real quiet, <laughs> Didn't say much, except uh, then a couple of days later, he was seated by himself at lunch, and uh, it had, they had done a story about some friends of mine who'd run some rivers in Ethiopia, some r- river rafters. And so I thought, OK, I'll just go over and s- say, I think we have mutual friends in the river rafting business. And so <laughs> because I knew that they would know these river rafters. And, and so I used that as a way to talk about my, ex- yeah, I'd lived in Ethiopia too. And I'd run a river there. <laughs> so. Um, we began to really hit it off. We discovered we had a lot in common, and uh, at the end of the trip, it was pretty clear that we were going to stay in touch, and that fall, we were married. <laughs>
0: <So>. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I thought that's where this was going. I remembered. <laughs> I remembered your husband's name. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's a real reveal there at the end. That's that's cool. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, so yeah. Virginia, let's let's jump forward. Um, yeah. I became aware of you back in the year 2000, just a couple of years after I came to Pomona. I I with um, an issue of. National Geographic on biodiversity and I remember oh, looking yes. picking up that issue and starting to look through it to see because I knew you were in it and I thought oh I'll, I'll look and see where what story she wrote and I realized <laughs> you'd written almost the entire issue yes tell us about you know stories from all over the world um, that must have been quite an experience can you tell us it, a little bit it, about that yes it
1: was a fabulous assignment and I I got my first assignment for The Geographic because I'd written a book called Ancestral Passions, The Leakey Family and the Quest for Humankind's Beginnings. And it was a biography about Louis, Mary, and Richard Leakey who had showed that humans evolved in Africa. And so, um, I, you know, I could t- talk about how I got that book assignment, but that's, you know, I, anyway, I, I did that book. It was a big chunk of my life. And the editors at Nat Geo. Loved it. I and so then I had a call from them in the late '90s, and they asked me if I would consider writing for the magazine.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> took me about hey, two one of the, seconds. Another to one say. of those really difficult questions. Yeah, right? really. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay.
1: I <laughs> considered. <laughs> so uh, I think that, that that the biodiversity issue was either my second or third assignment for the magazine. I mean, it was really quite quite an astonishing assignment. And uh, the editor was, at the time, was Bob Poole. Uh, he was a big fan of mine, which was lovely. And he wanted me to write this series of pieces that they'd, they had kind of picked them out. And uh, I'm trying to think exactly what one was on extinction, uh, one was on the state of the world's biodiversity in Madagascar, or the state mm-hmm. of Madagascar's biodiversity. Uh, there was an overview piece, what is biodiversity? And, uh, you know, so they had various topics, but the thing about the geographic is they would, they would c- call you up like that and um, tell you the subject, but then it was up to you to decide how you were going to approach it where you were going to do the research they leave all of that up to you so it's kind of a daunting thing because you're not sure you know is this what you want but um, <laughs> yeah yeah so so uh, I decided okay well for I didn't want uh, the pieces to focus necessarily always on the poorest parts of the world and or to suggest that only lesser developed countries were at risk of losing everything, you know, because we have a lot of problems here in our own country. So I remember one of the stories that I did. I went with Stuart Pym, who's done a lot of work on extinctions and the theory of extinction. what where do we stand to lose the most species? And we went he he suggested that I go with him to <coughs> see excuse me, see how this little sparrow in Florida, the Sable Coast Shore Sparrows, or some Sable Sparrow was doing. And they had outfitted these little birds with uh, special little transmitters so they could track them. And they lived in the Everglades and you would think they would be completely protected, but instead they were going extinct. And the reason they were going extinct was because the Army Corps of Engineers would flood the meadows every year right at the time that those birds would, were building their nests. And they were ground nesters. And yeah. so all you had to do was to wait till their nesting season was over. Wait another four to six weeks before you flood the fields. That's all it would take. And uh, Stewart eventually, I think, managed to get them to agree to that, although I'm not sure that under the current administration that's still the case. But um, at the time, it looked like the little sparrow was going to have a chance. But it was that was the disheartening thing about doing that. those series of stories, was to discover how many really ridiculous decisions were being made, not just in poor countries, but here in our own country that were causing animals to lose their lives forever. And that, well, it really just touched my heart. I just, I still, it makes me sad. To think that we could be so short-sighted or so indifferent to life on our planet. So that's upbeat. <laughs> <laughs> well, kind of, kind of along those those lines. That was twenty years ago. Um, how have yeah. things changed in
0: terms of the world's biodiversity?
1: Uh, well, I'm not sure they have. Look at the latest issue of Science, which is about the decline of insects and. Mm-hmm. What we're doing to our insect populations you know we're not treating them kindly at all and and again it's unnecessary in amount of pesticides that we use to grow our foods and uh just our general attitude and indifference we don't mm-hmm. care that there are fewer grasshoppers <laughs> So, yeah uh, the interesting thing was that then what well, was actually when i did um my book, Ancestral Passions, that I went to Gombe Stream and I met Jane Goodall mm-hmm. because Louis Leakey had started her on that project, mm-hmm. and um, we, as we were talking, one of the things that I saw there with Jane was this moment when um, she had given, or at the, they had a feeding station and there was a, there were two chimpanzees who were coming through, and one was this adult Beethoven, and he had this little chimpanzee with him who was uh, an adopted orphan and he at the feeding station she gave him a big bunch of bananas and he sat down that piggy guy he ate every single banana on the stem and none left none for this little chimpanzee dilly who was his little orphan he was caring for in his own way and so jane had held back one banana and i was sitting in another building across the way and so i could see her and she held when Beethoven, he, after eating that bunch of bananas, he lay down on his back, fell sound asleep. and Jane then caught Dilly's eye, and she held up this one banana. And normally, when chimpanzees see food like that, they make these hoot cries, hoo hoo hoo, hoo you know, and all panting, mm-hmm. excited. Beethoven had when he got that big hunk of bananas. Um, so, but Dilly didn't make a sound. She was like. Mom's the word. I'm not going to let anybody know. And then Jane <laughs> put this outside, outside the little building she was standing in. And then Dilly sat there, and she very patiently groomed Beethoven until he fell sound asleep. And she made sure he was snoring. And then, as if she was tiptoeing, really quietly, she walked around the side of the building, got the banana. Ate it like within three bites, chomp, 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 and then came back and took care of Beethoven again. And afterwards, I wow. said to Jane, this is like 1985, I think. And I said to Jane, I said, wow, that was so amazing. You know, that she was just, you guys were in this deception together mm-hmm. to see Beethoven about there being another banana. And I said, are you going to write that up? That's so cool. She said, oh no, I can't possibly. No one. Everyone would say, if I used the word deception, that everyone would say, Jane, you're just anthropomorphizing. How silly of you. You can't say things like that. And I said, but it was so clear. She said, well, I know. You know, I know. Chimpanzees have personalities. They have all of these things. They do all the things, same things that we do. But you can't say that. You have to say it. It was as if Dilly deceived Beethoven or it seemed like, (laughs) Dilly, but you could never say Dilly deceived Beethoven. She doesn't really act. She only seems to act, or it's as if she acts. But Jane said, you know, the field was changing, that um, there were scientists who were taking more of an evolutionary approach to animal cognition. And I would see that in time, people would begin to accept that other animals had thoughts and emotions. So I kind of shelved that. But I always wanted to do a book about it, and eventually, after the biodiversity issue, I proposed a story to Geographic about animal cognition, and they uh, gave me the assignment, and that led to my book Animal Wise. I did the story first for National Geographic, mm. and then I did the whole book on it for um, Penguin. Um, so yeah, it's a you know, I mean, it, it's one of the things that you learn as a writer is never to throw away your old notebooks. <laughs> Keep everything and
0: things go into the gristmill and, and you're, you're training surprised. for medieval literature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it, I mean exactly. one of the things yeah, that's one of the, the themes that comes through your book. That, and it's it's an interesting one to me. The this this whole notion that scientists are are like the rest of us inclined to develop these prejudices and oh yeah and and taboos, <laughs> you know. Um and how, are those, um, you know, why do you think that taboo on animals thinking and feeling was around for so long? And, and is it, does it still affect re- researchers today? Did it affect you after writing the book? The taboos or. Yeah. The, that, that, sort of scientific rejection of the very idea that, that. Uh, that
1: other animals think and yeah. have emotions. Well, no, I, I'm fully accepting of that. those ideas. I you have to be a little careful because some people take those those discoveries a little too far. And so the thing that troubles me the most probably is that people then want to have relationships not just with their dog but with wild animals. Yeah. <laughs> they want to go swim with the dolphins, <laughs> and that's like, well, you know, the dolphins don't really want to swim with you. <laughs> They want to swim. They have their own things that they're worried about. They've got to meet partners and they got to mate and they got to care for their young, you know. And so get out of the way, people. Just let them get on with their lives, kind of like we're doing now in this shutdown that we have going on. Animals are having a better time of it because we're out of the way. But, yeah, I I went into it, I thought, you know, as a science writer, you uh, approach most of your subjects With an open-mindedness, I mean, you have to write about their research and discoveries, but a certain amount of skepticism, too. You don't want to be given Mm -hmm. a snow job or report on things that aren't substantiated. There's no evidence. So I made sure that I chose researchers who were doing top-flight work, who had really solid papers that were peer-reviewed, and I wrote about their work and went to see them and meet them in their labs or in the field. I avoided um, people who were doing invasive research on animals. I just, mm-hmm. I didn't think that I could write about that in a in an effective way. It's it's so controversial and mm-hmm. um, it's really upsetting to me. So I, and the few labs that are where I did see people doing things that could only be described as cruel, I. I you know, I tried to block them <laughs> from my mind because yeah. uh, that's, a, that's a just a different way of going about it. What I looked for were scientists who were taking an evolutionary approach to understanding how animals think and how their emotions work, and it doesn't make sense that we as an organism would be here with our history of d- coming out of the primate line. Um, that we wouldn't share certain things with with them it just doesn't make any sense and so the problem with the field in the past as i understood it was that it had been taken over by the psychology department largely and so psychologists aren't trained as a to think in evolutionary terms and so they would kind of do these discrete tests to see well let's see what can the rat do this can the rat do that but it wasn't there wasn't any reason for why the rats would do, be able to solve mazes. What's the rationale behind it? Well, the only way you can explain what animals do is to understand how they live their lives in the wild and what are the evolutionary forces that would lead them to be able to do the things that they do. And so that was the approach that I took. I wanted to talk to researchers who were actually putting the animal in their habitat, in their society with their fellows and figuring out Why, for instance, do parrots have this ability to imitate our voices? It's not so they can imitate our voices. (laughs) It's not so they can Mm -hmm. tell you to go (laughs) shopping or, you know, (laughs) say hello to to you when you come back from your trip to the store. There has to be something more to it than that. And so then I looked for a researcher who was looking at parrots in the wild and able to explain... Why do they have this imitative ability? what other animals have it? We have it, dolphins have it, parrots have it. What do the we animals, those groups of animals share that would cause us all to have an ability to imitate one another? So that makes it a much more interesting question. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. that was the approach that I took.
0: Virginia, what are some of your more recent projects or projects you're working on now? Uh,
1: the last book that I wrote was about a biologist by the name of Robin Baird, a marine biologist. It was uh, for a series called Masters at Work that Simon and Schuster put out last year. And they asked a, a group of us to write about someone who was accomplished in their field and how they had become what they are. So my book was uh, Becoming a Marine Biologist. And I described the uh, life story basically of Robin Baird and how he had grown up on Vancouver Island and watched whales as a kid, but never really imagined that he would be able to become a marine biologist because he was bad at math. <laughs> but, <laughs> so, but he could write. <laughs> and uh, how he, one biology professor, realized that that was a rare gift in someone who wanted to be a scientist. Huh. And so it, don't worry about the math. You know, statistics, well, you can always get somebody to help you with that. But you can write. <laughs> so that's your strong suit. And he's now uh, gone on to develop a project in Hawaii where he is the expert on it's about, I think, 28 species of dolphins and whales that live in the off the Hawaiian Islands. Mm-hmm. At the time that he went there, no one realized that. And he's, I think... I want to say he started that work about 20 years ago. At the time there were people were focused on sort of two species there, the humpback whales and the spinner dolphins. And, Mm -hmm. but Brian, but Robin would go out and he would see other whales and dolphins doing things when he was out, say doing a project on the humpback whales. So he just began taking pictures of these other species. And over time showed that they too were resident to the Hawaiian islands. And that has really influenced the uh, way that they are treated, and the marine reserves that they have in the Hawaiian Islands. That they have such a variety of whales and dolphins that live there, and it affects also the naval exercises, the things that Navy can do, when they can do them. And it's all thanks to Robin and his ability, you know, his talent for being a really good observer and for being able to write about it.
0: We don't have much more time, but um, I—if I, it's okay—I want to go back to um, <clears throat> animal minds for just yes. a minute. Yeah. Can you tell us about one or two of the more amazing creatures that you met during that that process?
1: Oh well, I think, gosh, it's—I I would have to say the parrots because I—I I did have the fun of getting to meet Irene Pepperberg, who's worked with her parrot. Uh, Alex, until he passed away about 10 years ago now, I think, and I I was able to meet him before he died, and so I have these really lovely memories of watching her work with Alex, Alex. and uh, the, he was such a funny fellow. There were two other parrots she was working with, and uh, the way that they teach them how to say, to imitate our words would be to show them something like a a toy cube that was painted green or brown, and he had—he was trying to look, pr- learn how to pronounce the word brown. And so she, he would be in the back of the room, and then she had another parrot, Griffin, she was working with, who was, be in the foreground, and she would hold up things to Griffin that were colored green. She had a little platter, she would hold them up to him. And he was very nervous because their parrots are neophilic, they're afraid of new things, new people. And I was in the room. So he was his feathers were all shivering and quakey because I was there. And I was standing as far back as I could, but nevertheless, you know, he's afraid. So he's trying to say the word green and he would go goo, 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 goo. And Alex from the back of the room, speak clearly, speak clearly. <laughs> 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 and, and they're just <laughs> like us. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And then he would he would pick up this little toy brown cubie hat and he would hold it up and he would say, tell me what color. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and Irene and her two assistants would say in this little rhythmic sing song, brown, Alex, the color is brown. And then he would listen, you know, he'd sit there for a little bit, kind of hunched and go brown, brown, Alex, the color is brown. And eventually he got, he brown sort of like, good, good Alex, brown Alex, the color is brown. And that's how he'd learned uh, his vocabulary of about a hundred words that he could use to answer questions that Irene would pose to him. She wanted to see if parrots were capable of abstract thought. Could they mm-hmm. do things like tell you color and shape? And uh, yeah, he could do that. He could tell you. She could show him things that were all blue. How are they? How the same? Well, blue, color, he would say. You know, they're all all those things on your platter are the same because of color. is the same. And how are they different? Shape. So yeah. she was able to show <laughs> that, yeah, birds, even though they have the brain the size of a walnut, her parents <laughs> uh, ha, are able to do some abstract thinking. And she had yeah. him do yeah. a little math. It was it was amazing to me. And uh, people afterwards, I would hear from some scientists were really envious that I'd gotten to meet Alex. Others were hugely skeptical. They were all certain that she was giving him cues, although I saw no evidence of it. I And certainly where, where Alex would speak up like that, that talk clearly or speak clearly. <laughs> that was yeah. just Alex. You
0: know? <laughs> Alex being Alex. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Alex being Alex. <laughs>
1: And so then when Irene got a little angry with him because she said, oh, don't be a smart Alec. And then he got all sad. And so she said, "Okay," And he said, want to go tree? And he knew that outside the room there was a big window and you could see this leaky green tree. And he liked to go sit there in the sunlight and in that shade of of shining tree and so she said, okay. And so she said, he, and then he, he got on her arm and she, and she, and he said to her, good boy. And she said, yes, Alex. Oh, you're wow. good oh, wow. <laughs> and walked him down the hall to that tree. It was lovely. <laughs> you know, I mean the relationship between them, she'd uh, had him for about 30 years, I think at that point. And then he died not long a couple of years after that. And so uh-huh. I, I just it's something I truly treasure was the, my time with Alex. And all my time with all of the various animals. I the ants were wonderful. <laughs> and
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm I mean, afraid that, they'll they, have to read the book to know about the ants. <laughs> well
1: that turns out to be people's favorite one of people's favorite chapters. <laughs> I just yeah. I think it's so one of funny, mine. but I've had so many people say to me that they can't step on ants anymore. after
0: reading about them. <laughs> So our listeners will have to get the book so that they can read about the ants oh, that and would be about all the other animals. I, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful book, Virginia. It Thank really you. is. I loved it.
1: Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you for, for those kind words.
0: On that note, we're going to wrap have to wrap this up. Uh, We've been talking with Virginia Morrell, class of 71, the author of Animal Wise, How We Know Animals Think and Feel. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Virginia. That was so fun. Thank you, Pat. And to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.